and his understanding of the cross of Christ. And I, I uh, was thinking of Gerard the other day. I'd done some lectures here at the house on Gerard, and it, and it occurred to me the sense in which we need to set Gerard in a larger category and, in fact, understand uh, what he's doing in a biblical understanding with the Jews from a, a broader perspective. And so tonight, Frank and I are going to we're going to lay down, lay out just a little bit what Gerard is doing, and then we're going to try to to develop this and take it places that, uh, as far as I know, that has not uh, people have not used or, or taken Gerard in in the the way that we uh, we're we're looking to develop it. But Frank, uh, give us a give us a bit of a rundown on the significance of Rene Gerard. He's approaching reading, well, first of all, culture, and then also the Bible. And uh, it's kind of taking an anthropological, sociological, philosophical, historical approach. Everything. Yeah, kind of everything melded together, which, is, which makes him interesting. And really his theory, it's, it's very simple, but I think very profound. I think it has a lot of explanatory power. And what he compares it to himself, uh, he, he says, uh, just as natural selection would explain the diversity of species, so mimetic desire and rivalry counts for the diversity of culture. Lynn, let's pause there. I think this is a really significant point you're bringing out here. That just as within, you know, that what Darwin thought that he had discovered in natural selection was the key to everything, Gerard is saying the same thing about his discovery. And whether, you know, whether you agree completely with him, I think that no one would disagree that he has opened a door into myth and culture and explanations of it. Uh, he's given us a mechanism that, as far as I know, there is no tool or mechanism or idea that can open this door in the way that Rene Girard has. Yeah, and at the time he was you know, beginning his work and publishing his, his material, the idea that imitation uh, was foundational or, or at least largely significant neurologically or psychologically, uh, it was not very well accepted at the time. Towards the, let, the later end of his career, though, there's been quite an accumulation of research and studies that support the idea of imitation being pretty central to human nature. And so he's going to use this term mimetic, and uh, it just basically means imitation. All right, and so he's got four basic claims. One, that there's mimetic desire. All human desires are borrowed from each other, and those desires operate in a feedback loop. Two, mimetic rivalry. All human conflict originates a mimetic desire. Three, the scapegoat or victimage mechanism is the origin of sacrifice and the foundation of human culture, which is necessary for humanity to control the violence that arises from mimetic rivalry. And fourth, and perhaps the most interesting one, the Bible exposes the previous ideas and denounces the scapegoat mechanism. Let's go back through each of your four steps there and see if we can lay out a little bit the meaning and begin then with mimesis or uh, the idea that desire is a learned thing, that, you know, a child is going to desire, and, you know, you see this with children playing in a room, that if there's a room full of toys and there's two children, 
uh, what toy does the kid want to play with? Well, he wants to play with the toy that the other kid is playing with. That is that what makes something valuable is that another desires it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, having read this, I've used this on my children to get them to eat food that they don't want to eat, and it works perfectly. <laughs> He's using the Oedipus here, and so Gerard is very familiar with Freudian theory. But, you know, where Freud talked about the Oedipus complex, you know, and in, in the Oedipus complex, the child takes his father as his model. In other words, he wants to be his father. And Freud reads this as he did in early Freud anyway, in, in a very sexual way that the child, if he's going to be the father, then he has to marry his mother and, of course, displace the father. But I think what Gerard is saying is that he's taking out the sexual element of it and just saying that desire or mimesis is not necessarily, it's not necessarily a sexual thing. In fact, it is more basic to human development even than sexuality. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's not unique in presenting the idea of imitation or mimetic desire. That's happened long before him. What's unique to Gerard is saying that all human desire uh, and all violence is, is originating in this. And he'll even say all culture, it's the foundation of culture, is this imitation and mimetic desire. He even goes so far as to say that if you were to somehow cease all imitation, that culture would cease to exist. Because it's the desire that by its very nature draws people together. Is that the idea? Or puts them apart. <laughs> yeah, or it kills them, yeah, that, that splits them. Uh, yeah. So it is both the founding uh, aspect and the destructive aspect. Even though Gerard comes late to Scripture, you can just see him opening the early chapters of Genesis thinking that he was going to find more mythology and then reading that. And what you get, I think, in a deep reading, even of the temptation, that the original temptation is not without its mimesis. That is that Satan himself is one who, or the serpent at least, in the, in the garden, is the, the idea of demonstrating or, or invoking. And then it is like a plague, you know, that once Eve partakes. And then you go to Cain and Abel, that what Cain wants is what Abel has. And it's not clear exactly what that is, other than that he's acceptable to God. So this mimetic rivalry, he will just define, he will find again and again. Uh, in the Old Testament. Yeah. Let's go to, uh, let's, unless you had something else, let's go to your point two there. Okay. So that's mimetic rivalry, that all human conflict originates in mimetic desire. Yeah, so basically he's just saying that th this conflict that comes out of imitation and desiring what the other desires is what causes all human conflict, at least in its original sense. In other words, if it weren't for desiring what someone else had, there would be no human conflict. And Gerard, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me that Gerard, you can tie him directly into Freud, Lacan, Zizek. What's happening in a psychoanalytic understanding is that part of what 
is necessary for desire to arise. First of all, that desire is lacking. In other words, the very that you desire something that you do not have by definition. So that desire arises with both mimesis, imitation, but also as an obstacle. In other words, the in the Oedipus complex, the child wants to be the father, marry the mother, but the one that is the model is also the obstacle. You know, what Freud does with that is the idea that every child wants to kill his father and marry his mother, at least male children. He didn't have much to say about female children, but but again, I think Gerard creates a more universal understanding of this, and it's there in Lacan and, and Zizek too, that it's almost that the obstacle, the idea of a rivalry, is the very key ingredient to the desire. Thinking here of, you know, medieval knights fighting over the lady, you know, in waiting that's up on the balcony, really, that the interesting thing becomes the rivalry. The rivalry then seems to become the focus, and the object cause of desire is fluid. It could be anything. It, you know, you could attach on to tulips that, you know, <laughs> thinking here of the, the Dutch, you know, selling tulips for thousands, that any object potentially, given the right obstacle. And of course, here, I think the idea of a zero-sum game plays into this, that part of desire is that there's only so much of whatever the, there, there's not an abundance, uh, there is a limited supply, it's a zero-sum game, that whatever one person has uh, is at the expense of another. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of interesting note that uh, where Gerard started was actually in medieval literature. That's one of his first studies, I believe. Yeah, maybe that's uh, that we need to bring that out, that he's a literary specialist. Yeah. And and what he's finding in, in uh, the great, you know, literary works is always mimesis and then mimetic rivalry and then a triangulation. That is that there is always this rivalry over an object. And I think he claims it's there in Shakespeare, in the great literature. I think he's actually a Shakespeare specialist, but he, he specialized in several things. But he, keep, he kept finding the same thing over and over. And of course, the idea is that great fiction is actually built upon fundamental universal truths. Yeah. Even in the Genesis account there in the garden, God becomes the, the rival in a sense because it's his knowledge that he's not willing to share, that you have to disobey him in order to access what he has. So I think that, that model is definitely pervasive. And I think, I think Gerard is really on, on to something fairly interesting. You know, it's inter as you said, that, that strikes me that if you think of a Kantian philosophy that, that, in a sense, that Kant reproduces the idea in the phenomena and the noumena. The noumena is, in some way, always that thing that we cannot attain. It's the key to everything, and you cannot get it. That the whole system, this is the driving aspect, not only of uh, philosophy, but 
the, I think that we'll see the same thing when we come to talk about the Jews and how the historically they have been the scapegoat or that Jesus is the fundamental you know scapegoat it's the same thing that there is something there in the scapegoat it is a thing that would be attained but cannot it's absent it's not readily available but anyway that that just evoked that thought there and that's point two what what's uh, point three so the, the third thing is the scapegoat or victimage mechanism. And of course, obviously, scapegoat, he's taking that from uh, Leviticus there, the Yom Kippur, with the two goats there, the one that's driven out into the desert is the scapegoat. But what he's saying is that, you know, the Jewish scapegoat, and ultimately Christ, as he kind of becomes the ultimate scapegoat, it's, it's prototypical of what's happening everywhere else. And, and his point is that the Jewish literature is exposing this mechanism, whereas the other cultures are unconsciously continuing to participate in it without realizing what they're doing. And basically what he's saying is that what will happen, the result of the first two things, the mimetic desire and then the mimetic rivalry, is that at some point, as more and more of this mimesis is occurring, there will be so much competition and so much violence and so much human conflict that culture or that group will just be at the brink of utter chaos and self-destruction. And so what will happen is somebody will need to get blamed. Somebody will need to become the target of all the violence of the culture as a whole, whether it's everybody picking up stones for a stoning or whether it's uh, one person acting on behalf of, behalf of the, the mob, they will immolate or lynch this person in order to satisfy the chaos, the competition in that uh, society. And I've got a little quote here where he explains it a little bit. He says, In many rituals, everyone assembled is required to participate in an immolation that might easily be mistaken for a sort of lynching. Even when the sacrifice is performed by a single person, that person usually acts in the name of everyone involved. The community affirms its unity in the sacrifice, a unity that emerges from the moment when the division is most intense, when the community enacts its dissolution in the mimetic crisis and its abandonment of the endless cycle of vengeance. But suddenly, the opposition of everyone against everyone else is replaced by the opposition of all against one. Where previously there had been a chaotic ensemble of particular conflicts, there is now the simplicity of a single conflict. The entire community is on one side, and on the other, the victim. This brings out several things, and you know the idea here that everybody does it, but nobody does it. Yeah. And this may be part of the next step. But the idea is, how did this person die? What you know was was he murdered? Was he killed? Well, in a sense, no one did it. Even if someone, even if he's saying, even a particular individual carries it out. He doesn't carry this out in and through his own willpower, but on behalf of the group. And I think usually what you see in a stoning or if, you know, a group of people stab someone, no one individual can be held culpable. And then later, of course, they'll say, well, in fact, there was no murder. It never happened. But it brings the group together. And, you know, there's nothing like bringing a, a, a group together who they can have as an em en enemy. In fact, that is that tends to be definitive, I think. I used to teach in Japan, and in Japan, they almost consciously seem to use scapegoating because every little class of people would have be broken up. It, you, it was on the 
seven village system. You know, they would have one classroom, then it would be broken up into groups of seven, if I'm, I think it was seven. But it was inevitable that in any classroom, there would be a scapegoat. And sometimes, you know, the child might be just a little bit odd or, or not. You never, you never know. You know, this is the point about the Jew. You know, those Jews, they're especially tricky because they look just like us. They speak our language. They dress just like us. But that means that they're even more, you know, seductive and insidious. Sort of the German take on, you know, the Nazi take on the Jews. So the scapegoat, historically, it might be slaves or it might be children that would be sacrificed. Uh, it might be someone who's diseased. Gerard refers to an Aztec myth in which there's the little pustule-covered one who they clearly have sacrificed to keep the sun rising. And it indicates that maybe he had leprosy or some sort of skin disease. The focus of the violence then on the scapegoat, you think of the boys that went in and shot the children at Columbine. You know, the boys, I think they were bullied, but they didn't go and shoot the bullies. They just went in and shot everybody. That is that in this random anger, the rage is blind. But in the scapegoat, then suddenly the violence is directed upon a singular victim. And I think that isn't that the key mechanism there. Yeah, I got a little quote here about that. And what he'll say, the culture, the people that are doing this are not necessarily aware of what they're doing. It's more or less something that just kind of has to happen, at least as far as the group as a whole. Now, there might be a couple people kind of directing it that know this. I think you see this with the high priest and Caiaphas with Jesus. You know, they say, isn't it right that one man should die for mm -hmm. the sake of the people? Now, I think there might be some leaders who are kind of instigating the, the event that know what they're doing. But but the, the group as a whole might not understand it. And what Gerard explains happening in the long run is that over time, it's going to be forgotten that, he was, that this person was murdered. There's going to be recognition that this person actually saved the culture, not necessarily from anything real, but from the rivalry and the violence that was spinning out of control. And so there will be some kind of mythology built up around this person and this event. And he explains that all of the rituals and, and the sacrifices the myths that we have where people have sacrificed themselves were probably actually lynched in one of these one of these events, a mimetic crisis event like this. I happen to have a quote here. All the dissensions, rivalries, jealousies, and quarrels within the community, the sacrifices are designed to suppress them. The purpose of the sacrifice is to restore harmony to the community to reinforce the social fabric. Everything else derives from that. If once we take this fundamental approach to sacrifice, choosing the road that violence opens before us, we can see that there is no aspect of human existence foreign to the subject, not even material prosperity. When people no longer live in harmony with one another, the sun still shines and the rain falls, to be sure, but the fields are less well-tended, the harvests, harvest less abundant. This is from violence in the sacred. That literally the culture can't hold together. Yeah. And I think, you know, Gerard himself, he poses a question here, because seeing this happen again and again throughout all 
cultures, all history, it is something that is just basic human nature that we, we fall into this mechanism, mechanism here. Uh, and so he asked the question, how is it that such unity against the victim is possible in so many diverse rituals? What force unites the collective against the victim? He's got an answer here. And uh, I think it's kind of frightening if we realize what he's saying, because it puts us all, no matter how moral or uh, modern and you know secular or, or whatever we consider ourselves to be beyond this simple mythological mob event, we are just as likely to fall into this. And he explains, the idea that a group would gather to immolate any sort of victim in order to commemorate the guilt they still feel for a prehistoric murder is purely mythical. What is not purely mythical, by contrast, is the idea that men would immolate victims because an original spontaneous murder had in fact unified the community and put an end to the real mimetic crisis. There would be no contradiction in intent between prohibitions and rituals. Prohibitions attempt to avert the crisis by prohibiting those behaviors that provoke it. And if the crisis recurs nonetheless, or threatens to do so, ritual then attempts to channel it in a direction that would lead to resolution, which means a reconciliation of the community at the expense of what must, one must suppose to be an arbitrary victim. In fact, no individual victim can ever be responsible for a mimetic crisis. So explain then the way that we're going from the scapegoating mechanism. Describe then how there is the deification of the victim. Well, I don't know that I have a really neat way to sum that up. At least the way I think he explains it is that the guilt of the culture doing this, having realized that the victim was innocent, that they try to sugarcoat the event to make that person out to be the hero. This is, if you read myth, and you can usually see this part of it, in other words, myth, first of all, is very strange that in the Aztec myth, it's the council of the gods, and one of the gods volunteers to be the sun. And of course, what you're talking about is they probably burned him up, you know, or threw him in the volcano or whatever. Yeah. I think it's a Native American myth that this is the founding myth. A woman has intercourse with a dog and gives birth to six puppies. Her tribe banishes her, and she is forced to hunt for her own food. One day, as she returns from the bush, she discovers that the puppies are children and that they shed their animal skins the moment she leaves the house. So she pretends to leave, and when her children are, as it were, undressed, she takes their skins away, forcing them to keep their human identity from now on. The woman becomes a great goddess, punishing bestiality, incest, and all other society's rules. It's a kind of a summation of a typical myth. First of all, that in some way, and this ties into Freud too, that the you know the primordial myth or the you know the original uh, horde in Freud's picture, that you have the sons who are without wives because the, their father, in some way, is keeping all the women for himself. And the sons then gather together and kill the father and eat him. You know, and Freud, Freud says, of course, they eat him. And what becomes the founding moment of the culture is precisely the thing that is forbidden. There is the sense in these myths, and if you go and you look at Carnival or other 
aspects of cultures that when people wear masks, it is a period in which people either can uh, ritualistically be transgressive or, you know, actually transgressive, that during carnival you can do you can do all kinds of transgressive things. And of course, in the myth, the idea is that the woman in some way transgressed. You know, if you know something about Native American peoples, there's the dog people, the wolf people, that they identify, particular clans, identify with a particular animal. And so what's being pictured in some way is the this founding myth in which the woman is deified because she is the mother goddess of this clan, of this tribe. Now, if, if you didn't have Gerard, I don't know what you would do with a, a story like that or how you would read it. I think it's certainly insightful because it's, it's a unifying theme. Right? We see it happen again and again. The way he's able to see the interpretation is because it's countered and exposed in, in the biblical literature. Now, I, I had, uh, let me, here's a quote on desire. And, and, and again, talking about the parallel between Gerard and biblical literature. In other words, desire, I think, is very much front and center in a Jewish concept of sin, certainly the Paul's understanding of sin. Uh, the desire is not simply, you know, I, I'm hungry, I desire to eat, but desire is pictured as a kind of primordial drive. And Gerard seems to be getting at this. It's not just basic desires or instincts. He says, desire chooses its objects through a mediation of the model. It is a desire modeled on the other, yet identical with the intense yearning to reduce everything to oneself. From its inception, desire is divided between the self and the other, who always seems to be superior and more independent than the self. That is, that the self in some way is inadequate. There's a lack. This is, in essence, the paradox of pride, identical with desire, and its inevitable defeat. The model designates the desirable object by desiring it himself. Desiring is always mimetic of another desire, hence desire of the same object, and the inexhaustible source of conflicts and rivalries. The more the model trans transforms himself into an obstacle, the more desire tends to transform obstacles into models. So there are several just immediate parallels between what Gerard is doing, just he's, he's identifying these key categories, violence, you know, mimetic rivalry, desire, sacrifice, and then the fourth point. Can you explain that one to us? Yeah, so the, the fourth point is just that the biblical tradition exposes all of the previous ideas, you know, the, the mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, and the scapegoat mechanism, and it denounces them. And what he says, you know, this isn't, for him, it culminates in Christ, but it's also throughout the entire, the entirety of the biblical narrative, and in particular, Jewish people, because uh, obviously the, the word he's getting, scapegoat, is from Jewish culture. It's from the Day of Atonement. Well, here's a quote. Certainly there must be, behind the biblical account, myths in conformity with the universal norms of mythology. So the initiative of the Jewish authors and their critical reappraisal and undoubt must undoubtedly be credited with the affirmation that the victim is innocent 
and that the culture founded on murder retains a thoroughly murderous character that in the end becomes self-destructive once the ordering and the sacrificial benefits of the original violence have dissipated. So he's saying a couple things here. One is that the Jewish culture saw, or at least the authors, the authors of the Bible, saw and understood what was happening in these other cultures, but refused to acquiesce to it in their own religious structure and in their own culture. They would never try to mythologize the victim. If someone was murdered or, or lynched or sacrificed, it was always described as, a, as an innocent victim and, and not portrayed as some kind of voluntary thing. And the other thing that he's saying is that it also exposed cultures that would use the scapegoat mechanism without understanding you know, and, and trying to use that as the glue for the culture will always continue in that violence. And, and in the end, it will just become self-destructive to the culture. Um, that the scapegoat mechanism is not uh, an adequate way to deal with the violence of a culture. It will not last forever. So the, you're saying that the sacrificial system will break down. Yeah, in a culture where it's not understood what it is. He'll explain this a little bit more uh, when he's talking about the passion, but I think the, the misunderstanding, and this is a large part of what I was addressing in my atonement paper in the communion conversations we've had, that the misunderstanding of the biblical sacrifices is that they actually had some power in themselves. I think they were representations. They were op opposing what they had in other cultures. I, we, yeah, we talked about this before that, you know, the animals that the Jews were, were told to sacrifice were the ones that would have been revered in Egypt. And the ones that were clean for eating were the ones that would have been uh, sacred in Egypt. And so it's kind of this, tr this turning over of the culture they came out of. It wasn't that the... God actually intended for the sacrifices to have some effect in solving their societal problems. Uh, it was more that they were kind of uh, visceral object lessons. And, you know, it's important to point out that the, sacrif the sacrificial system didn't come about until after they had made the golden calf. So, you know, they were going to revere and worship the calf. And so then God declares that as the, the clean animal that we're going to sacrifice and eat. Mm -hmm. So... I think the point of it as a whole is not that the Jewish sacrificial system is some kind of ignorant myth, but rather it's a, it's an object lesson to drive them away from the, the type of mythological worship they had come from in Egypt. And what Gerard's going to be saying is that, you know, you know, the naive interpretation of a sacrificial system is what will completely prevent you from seeing the real point of, of the Jewish narrative, and that is that we're not going to lynch the innocent people. We're not going to sacrifice one for the sake of the whole. It's, it's really that the Jewish culture is standing in opposition to the cultures around them. God says, don't give your children to the fire, you know, in reference to Baal. And this is very, very clear in the, in the prophets in particular, where he goes into great detail about how they're imitating the nations around them. And most of the things he's critiquing them for participating in are the parts where they're sacrificing people. Yeah, I have a, a quote from, uh, you know, Jeremiah even questioned whether sacrifices originated with God at all. He says, uh, For in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, 
and walk only in the way that I command you so that it may be well with you. That's Jeremiah 7, 22 to 23. And of course, that's uh, uh, you could just string out the prophetic uh, critique. You know, Isaiah says, What it to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So the, the picture is the call for love, justice, and not sacrifice. Hosea says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So that accords with what you're saying, that the sacrifices, as you said, were a visceral lesson over and against the culture and religion of Egypt. Right. And perhaps, this is actually kind of a good point here, to point out one of the critiques of René Girard is that uh, he seems to leave no room for, for wholesome good imitation. Uh, in, in Gerard, it kind of seems, the more you read it, you know, that all imitation is evil. And I'm not sure that's what he's saying. I think he just hasn't covered, or at least in what I've read, he hasn't covered, covered that particular topic. I don't think he's specifically saying that there's no such thing as good imitation. But perhaps part of the problem with the Jewish system is that they didn't have the person of Christ to imitate. They were given a description of a different culture. They were given rituals to kind of re reprogram their, their thinking. But at the same time, they never really had a role model that they could fully imitate to, to learn how to be a different type of person, to be a different type of culture. And I think that's what is so earth-shattering in what happened with Pentecost and, uh, you know, following. Now, Peter and John and, and uh, eventually Paul... Uh, they have a, a person who has demonstrated exactly what that kind of alternative culture is supposed to be. They had a role model. And Paul will later write, be your imitators of Christ. Mm. And perhaps part of the reason that uh, as a culture, they never fully were able to embody the law as God intended it. And there's a certain amount of misunderstanding that developed over time. But uh, in, the, in the church, you know, we had a, a much clearer example of what that alternative culture would be. And uh, that, you know, we have something worth imitating that will be different than mimetic rivalry. You had said something earlier, and I wanted to bring it into what you're saying now. Uh, Gerard referencing a foundation to cultures. Yeah, that uh, mimetic rivalry uh, is the foundation of all culture. And what you're describing in that sense, in other words, foundation, a very bloody foundation, a, a kind of mythical lie is the foundation of culture. Mm -hmm. And that is what Judaism and Christianity is exposing, is the lie that stands behind culture. Now that sounds yeah. strange in a sense, not culture and, oh, being cultured, but culture in the sense of a tribe, a people, that what causes them to cohere is precisely the, the thing that the ignorance, the deception, the violent murder that they in some way have covered up, and that is the very thing that binds them. Yeah. 
And then you go on and you've said, but the Jews didn't have this foundation. That's a good foundation not to have, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what they had, you know, their foundation was a God who brought them out of that, a God who exposed the weakness of the, the most powerful ruler that they knew. So, you know, rather than covering up and hiding, you know, which we could equate to pride, no, we have everything's laid bare. And and that's kind of the what you see throughout throughout the Jewish scriptures is that they're not afraid to talk about their heroes, whether Abraham or David, and uh, let let all their flaws be known. Right, right. To a degree, I think much further than you get in any other mythology, as far as sacred scripture from other cultures. And uh, so, right there, you know, you're already starting with a very different foundation. It's not the foundation of of rivalry and and pride and hiding. But rather, it's it's a exposure and you know dealing with it and reconciliation, forgiveness, and uh, ultimately, I think in Christ, what you end up with is also the power of new life and creation, rather than destruction for the sake of control being the founding you know founding glue of the culture. Let's clarify here. We're using this word foundation, and of course, in postmodernity, the critique of foundationalism. They tie this to modernism. There is this parallel then between what Derrida is doing and finding a kind of inherent violence in human culture, language, the law, and Gerard is doing in describing how this actually functions. There's a wonderful book, I think it may have been, uh, is it McKenna that's written on violence and difference, showing the comparison between Gerard and Derrida. So we're not using the word foundation in any different sense here. In other words, we're yes, we do mean, uh, I think, the idea of uh, the foundationalism as you have it in modernity. But even more than that, that every culture in some way is functioning upon the same deceptive foundation. In other words, that's that you could take the cogito apart, the Cartesian cogito, that it's inherently a, a, a deception. So the anti-foundationalism, I think people throw that around, that term around, but I think Christianity, as you're describing it, what you're saying, there is this anti-foundationalism as directed against the presumption of culture, of understanding as you have it, but that is then displaced by the foundation that we have in Christ. Jesus said to Peter, you know, that's the rock on, on which I'm going to lay my foundation. We have just such a, a different orientation. You know, it's, it's iconoclastic. We're, we are very much about breaking down the deceptions that culture has built up. That's kind of the whole point. Even Paul in his, if you want to call it the first apologetic in Athens, right? You know, you all are worshiping what you don't know. And he refers to their poets and is not afraid to say, you know, we have a different answer. We know what you don't understand. He's taking down their whole origin. That's the, the New Testament, <laughs> if rightly understood. Yeah. That it is an exposure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Gerard, you know, he's got some particularly sharp words for the understanding of, you know, we'll just say an Anselmian understanding of atonement when it comes to the cross. He says... Certainly the passion is presented to us in the Gospels as an act that brings salvation to humanity, but it is in no way presented as a sacrifice. If you have really followed my argument up to this point, you will already realize that from our particular perspective, 
the sacrificial interpretation of passion must be criticized and exposed as a most enormous and paradoxical misunderstanding, and at the same time as something necessary, and as the most revealing indication of mankind's radical incapacity to understand its own violence, even when that violence is conveyed in the most explicit fashion. Yeah, this is the great tragedy of what has happened, if Gerard is correct, or even if it's it's not just Gerard, I just think if you know if we read the New Testament in this light, that it's not that the New Testament is a duplication of pagan God, the gods are angry, we have to feed the gods, and that's what you get in sacrifice that sacrifice. Uh, at least in paganism, is always a propitiation in some way that, you know, blood is... It solves your God problem. Yeah, yeah. And God is a problem in that, and God is to be feared. I lived in Japan for 20 years, and the religion is religion of fear. The whole thing is built on fear. And what you're doing primarily in the religion is appeasing the gods. You know, you want the gods, the gods are pictured as angry. And so, unfortunately, I, I always, I'm aware that we, we don't want to scapegoat Anselm <laughs> or, or Calvin. Uh, maybe they were just the bright thinkers, but uh, they have kind of the prototype then of a Christianity that seems to, in, at least in Gerard's estimate and others' estimate, there is a Christianity that is to miss the, the point is that no, God is not hungry, demanding sacrifices, and, you know, demanding blood and angry, that is precisely the thing that was to be exposed in the sacrifice of Christ. In regard to Anselm and Calvin, maybe it's a little postmodern of me, but uh, I, I tend to think that most people writing are, are just kind of revealing the thought of the day, and maybe some are articulating it better than most people understand. It's just more paganism. Yeah. I mean, Calvin's following Luther, and Luther's just following Constantinianism. And you kind of have to look at what these guys did. In other words, in the New Testament, it's not a hard thing to discover what authentic Christianity is. It probably doesn't go about the business of murdering people. Luther is going to encourage the pogroms of the, you know, against the Jews and even the peasant wars. He's a guy who incorporates violence into his system. Calvin is going to, you know, burn some, what, 70 people at the stake. But these forms of Christianity prove themselves wrong in a, just wrong. You don't need to think very long. Yeah, you probably shouldn't be burning and killing and, and, and bent upon an anti-Semitic understanding. And so Gerard's exposure of the violence is in some way defeated in these systems, that it takes Christianity and just makes it more of the same. I'm not sure if this is exhaustively correct, but I think every major reformer, uh, Luther, Zwingli, etc., all agreed that the Anabaptists deserve to die. Everybody, had, everybody had wanted to, uh, to drown the Anabaptists, you know. They came together. <laughs> <laughs> on that one point, yeah. On, on the particular people that wouldn't fight back. So I guess it worked out for them. This is, you know, Gerard's point clear through here that Christianity, there is a resemblance between myth, you know, the idea of the death of the God and the resurrection. And so, you know, people find that and 
among liberals, they say, oh, yeah, the Bible, it's just more myth. Among conservatives, there may be the, the idea, oh, no, it's, it's completely different. Well, Gerard's point is, no, actually, the Bible is following these myths to expose them, to uncover them, that there may be patterns of similarity that is purposeful in this. If we're to pick one point in Gerard to critique, and I mean, you have to understand how he, he's coming from a very secular position and from there realizing the legitimacy of, of the Jewish tradition and, and Christianity and how it's different from the rest of the world's religions in that it exposes this mechanism. I think he still kind of retains a little bit too much of that secularization. And I don't think that he, I mean, I don't know if he accepts the resurrection or not, or if that is a little too mythological for his taste. But uh, I think, you know, when we're talking about this whole problem of mimetic rivalry, the zero-sum game, the only way to really overcome it, you know, I think Gerard, he kind of thinks that in exposing this mechanism, that's enough for culture to overcome it. Uh, and so for him, that's what the work of the cross is primarily about. And I do think that's an important part of the cross is, is exposing this mechanism. But, uh, I mean, the mechanism had been exposed already through Judaism, and I don't think that's enough. I think what you need more so than that is to remove, you know, this is Freud's death drive thing, right? The, the angst and the fear of death, which, you know, Paul points out that's what gives the ruler of the world power is the fear of death. And uh, I think without the hope of resurrection, the idea of recreation, the idea that life is not in limited supply, the hope of new life and resurrection is abundant and available, without that idea, without that hope, without that faith, without that truth, there's really no way to avoid mimetic rivalry and mimetic crisis. You will always fall back into that. And I think that is kind of what is, is shown with Luther and uh, Zwingli and the other reformers being willing to sacrifice the, you know, the Jews or the Anabaptists or anybody else that didn't fit into their paradigm because it was necessary. If you don't have the power of God, which is different than the power of the world, you can't stand against this. Mm -hmm. It's not just understanding it that's, that's what helps you overcome it. It's understanding that there's something more powerful than taking away somebody else's possession. Mm -hmm. Let me agree with you, but add an addendum to it, that I think you're right, that the, a criticism that is often made of Gerard is that, well, this doesn't explain everything, or this is, you know, here's an example of something where he doesn't cover it. I can absorb that criticism and say, yeah, I, I don't know that Gerard himself, but or, or certainly people who appreciate Gerard, don't need to understand that he's giving us an exhaustive explanation of the cross or of, right. of anything in that sense, but he's given us a key yeah. Uh, and, and certainly we need to, to broaden this out and add to it that to just read Gerard as, you know, I think that would be a kind of flat reading in and of itself. But it certainly adds an orb, you know, a, a facet of understanding that is not otherwise there. Oh, yeah, I think it's absolutely valuable. I think the two things go together. Without either half of that, I think it's very difficult to really understand what is happening in the cross. But with the two pieces put together, the hope of resurrection and this exposure of this mechanism that the rest of the world is stuck in, really what he's doing is kind of understanding the systemic nature of sin. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he uses the, the word, but I mean, that's really what he's describing is sin. 
Yeah, I I didn't mention Gerard in my blog today, but it sort of fits, you know, that you have a Christianity that's all about escape, you know, and still is an active participant in all the problems of, you know, desire of the health and wealth gospel. We can, many of us can see the problem in that. But in, in a way that much of Christianity is kind of flattened out to obtaining, you know, obtaining a place in heaven, attaining uh, some future escape as a kind of insurance. And I think that's Gerard's critique of a traditional atonement theory, that it, it doesn't get at the real human predicament. Now, whether Gerard does himself fully and completely, I think, yeah, probably not. But at least here is the beginning of of an idea. I had a couple of things that I, I thought we could add to this. One thing, there are particular places in the Gospels that are very interesting. You know, you can, the obvious places in the Old Testament, you know, that Joseph and his brothers, if you read that story with Gerard in mind, that the brother that they would sacrifice, uh, Joseph, you know, by the end of the story, they would sacrifice themselves for Benjamin. Yeah. Yep. You read the story of the wisdom of Solomon, the two prostitutes, and the baby, you know, and Solomon says, yes, let's sacrifice the baby. Let's split it in two. And, of course, the authentic mother is the one who would, in fact, relinquish her rights to the child. And once you get this and you, you see these Old Testament stories, one after another, that clearly the Jews are a people who have an appreciation then are able to read human desire. Uh, you know, they are people who have been uh, given revelation. They, that they, they understand these things on the basis of who God is and the, the people that they're... And, and so I think that one of the things that we can see in the Old Testament is that they are able, you know, think here of Abraham. When he's before, it happens two times that Sarah is, you know, very beautiful, and Abraham's able to read the king's mind before the king can. Think here of Jacob, you know, that Jacob is the trickster because he can read Esau, he can predict what Esau wants, and he can manipulate him accordingly. This idea of standing outside of desire, of being able to read desire. I think that this is part of the appreciation that Gerard has for what's happening in the Old Testament and that is also happening in the great literature of the world. You know, you read somebody like Dostoevsky. I think this is another one that Gerard focuses on, that there is this ability to read the human heart in a fashion that is just not available otherwise. Then, by the way, the idea of modern literature, Western literature is a development out of a Judeo-Christian insight, certainly. Somebody like Dostoevsky. Yeah. Okay, once you've said that, you've said these people, the scapegoating mechanism has been revealed to them. They do not scapegoat. But then they become the scapegoat, right? Well, if you don't stand with the mob, you're outside the mob. <laughs> 
part of this is you're kind of tr treading dangerous ground. You want to say, well, why were those Jews scapegoated? And in any particular period in history, you know, prior to the Enlightenment, you know, oh, they're they're too fluid. You know, they're they're too cosmopolitan. They don't have uh, allegiance. And then after the French Revolution, you know, they would be accused of sticking to their religion too much. That is, they would be accused of of being poor and ignorant or of being intellectuals and 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 greedy that there is no consistency to the anti-semitism they they kind of became you know the noumena of the culture you know you're talking about that god himself is in some way a mystery and in a sense that in this noumena or in this blank spot you could just put whatever you wanted because the jews were in fact not. They would not give allegiance in the way that the various cultures would demand. They would not be caught up in the various revolutions and tribalism. They would always count themselves apart. But then, you know, you get into Nazi Germany. And of course, prior to this, you know, the idea was, well, these Jews, we have to convert them to Christianity. Well, the Nazis are, you know, Hitler's saying just the opposite. Well, you, they're, they're genetically different. The only answer is genocide. And so there is an evil, I, you know, the ultimate evil, the Holocaust. I don't know if in the history of the world it gets worse than this. That comes to focus upon the Jews. And I, I would say that the characteristics then of the Jews are like the characteristics of Christ that he was accused of being, you know, variously uh, sympathetic to Rome. He was accused of being a wine-bibber. He was accused of being demonic. He was, you know, that all of the accusations that might be made of Jews would be made of Jesus. And, of course, the exposure there of the, of the entire system. The anti-Semitism, in a strange way, and isn't it strange that a Christianity— that is aimed, I think, a New Testament Christianity that is aimed precisely at exposing that sort of anti-Semitism. The idea that in the New Testament, what Christ is doing, you know, in places like he talks in, uh, in Matthew or Luke, that he's exposing the myth in Luke 11.50. The blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be required of this gener generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That he's giving us the history of, the, of murder. He's exposing this history. He's saying, you're going to kill me, and you've always killed the prophets. This is what you've always done, and you're about to do it to me. And they carry this out. And then the irony is that People repeat this, not getting the message, that they say, let's get him. And then people say, let's get them, let's get the Jews. And missing the key, missing the, the entire message, that there should have been the exposure of this violence. But ironically, just as Jesus stood in the place and exposed this, if we don't get it, the danger is that this scapegoating continues. And again, in Gerard's picture, it cannot ever, the full-blown scapegoating mechanism no longer works because of Christianity. But they're still scapegoated is in the, uh, in the plague, the Black Death.
that would be the culmination of this. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered because, oh, well, those Jews. And, of course, Gerard's point is, yeah, they were scapegoated, but the mechanism in which it would be mythologized, it no longer functions. Yeah, but we still still participate in it, I think, is the, is the danger. The point, I, it's kind of a, maybe a vague point there. In other words, if you set the Jewish sacrifices in the history of the Jews and who they are as a people and the fact that they too then have been scapegoated. Then you go back and read there about their sacrificial systems, what the prophets have to say about the sacrificial systems. I think Gerard was early, early on, he was confused. He just thought, oh, the Jewish sacrifices are more of the same. And what my point would be, no, given if you put it in the proper context, we can say, no, that they themselves, the, the sacrifices, and your point with the scapegoat was, was exposing the, the very mechanism. At least later, Gerard, I don't think he would disagree. I think that's uh, exactly where he ends up. Frank, this has been wonderful. I'm glad, I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, it's a good conversation. I think this is pretty foundational, uh, along with understanding the idea of, of resurrection and, and that, what that really means, and combining it with this understanding of you know, the systemic nature of sin. It really is what helps us understand what's happening in the world and why the kingdom of God is different and how it's different. We can begin to live this thing out now. We can begin to live life differently, have a different order of experience.